This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 18th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Yossi Meckelberg and Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, recaps what we learnt this week. We learned that instead, some genius had invented a clever classroom whiteboard that expands at the pull of a lever into a ballistic shelter. We are absolutely not making this up. And we're going to introduce you to the lesser-known side of Ibiza. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. First, though, here's the news. The International Criminal Court, the ICC, has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin, alleging Moscow's forcible deportation of Ukrainian children is a war crime. The Kremlin has reacted with outrage. Ukraine's President, Vladimir Zelensky, said the mood would lead to historic accountability, adding that the deportations consisted a policy of state evil which starts precisely with the top official of the state. Riot police clashed with protesters on Friday evening in Paris as a new demonstration took place against the government's plans to raise the French state pension age. A broad alliance of France's main unions said they'd continue their mobilisation to try and force a U-turn on the changes. Protests continue this weekend with a new day of nationwide industrial action scheduled for Thursday. North Korea claims that about 800,000 of its citizens have volunteered to join or re-enlist in the nation's military to fight against the United States. The day before, the United States accused China of attempting to hide North Korea's atrocities from the world by blocking the webcast of an informal meeting of United Nations Security Council members on accusations of human rights abuses by Pyongyang. And thousands of dead fish have been found this week in the Darling River near the town of Menendi, around a 1,000 kilometres west of the state capital, Sydney. Environmental authorities say low levels of oxygen in Australia's second longest river were to blame. Well, let's have a look at the day's papers now with Yossi Meckelberg, who's Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Welcome, Yossi. Good morning. Uh, the headlines, of course, were reporting this whole ICC uh, arrest warrant for, for Vladimir Putin. That's interesting in so many different ways, least of which is, is the fact that it does mean that he can't use any of his reported bolt holes that he has throughout Europe. No, he he can't. And from now on, he's at least under suspicion. I think for most of us, it's almost an obvious that there is a case, not only... Here is a specific issue of basically abducting Ukrainian uh, children and moving them to to Russia for so-called re-education, which is interesting because it's actually a term from the communist Soviet Union having these huge camps of re-education. We we know exactly what, what it means. But in this case, he's already under suspicion, under investigation, and the judge says, yeah, there is a warrant against him, so he's confined to Russia. He can't live anywhere, otherwise he might be arrested. Mm. Which is which is a, a good thing or a bad thing? Because don't people want him to leave Russia? Well, it can be a double-edged sword. 
It depends how you look at it. On one way, it's it's a pressure point. You tell them, listen, you're under our watch. And this is only the beginning, because if you look at the bigger picture, this is might be uh, not that I'm under a... I'm belittling it. It's a terrible crime to do that to, to children. But if you think about all the killing and the kind of women and, and, and destroying cities and all the atrocities committing in Ukraine now, this is only one out of many. So in this case, is it a pressure on him? See what might happen when the war is over and all wars come to an end. On the other, is it going to be entrenched? Said, what do I have to lose? If I lose this war and I don't manage to stay in Moscow, I end for the rest of my life in The Hague, so I need actually to increase. And that's the question. Does it lead him more to think, to be more reconciliatory and thinks I need to negotiate? We'll talk in a minute about negotiations. Or no. And I, I, I take the example, for instance, of Syria. Does it make, if you're under this kind of, of, of threat, mentally, especially where you're so isolated, and that's what happens to this kind of leaders, mm. this situation, what is the thought process there? Mm. Becoming more extreme or less extreme, more conciliatory, or actually more rigid in your thinking? And of course, he doesn't need to leave Russia at the moment because people no. come to him as Xi Jinping is going to do next week. Yeah, and this is kind of, I think it's a clever move by, by Xi Jinping. And, you know, just on the back of almost an historic agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which only a few months ago, so now there is no chance of this, that they resume diplomatic relations. They are coming and basically outwit the West, outwit the, the, the United States, and, and re, the resumption of relation between sworn enemies there in the Gulf uh, it becomes possible. So the question now, is it possible for China to play a major role in, the, in, in bringing together Ukraine and, 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 and Russia? If not ending the war, if not in a peace agreement, ceasefire, reducing the violence there. And this will be a massive achievement by, by China. The fact that China is capable of doing that, while the Security Council is basically not functioning, this will put it in again, step by step, as a major country that doesn't use a, a hard power, not involved with the war itself despite siding itself more with Russia than Ukraine, but as a, a peace broker. I mean, there are a number of things there. Firstly, we do know that some Chinese companies are supplying uh, at least military assistance in terms of perhaps drones or ammunition and, and so on. So, so China isn't disinterested. Also, yeah. Russia is a huge trading partner for China. Could it be said that China's already nailed its colours to the mast, that, that it has picked a side? And what happens then if, if it absolutely makes a solid agreement with Russia to support the war? I mean, is it likely? And if it does, what happens then? I think they will be more subtle than that. They... Because Ukraine knows that there is so much power, but this is a major economic power. It's a major in terms of producing drones and other weapons. It can help. It can help Russia in the war effort. So this gives it a leverage vis-à-vis -vis Ukraine. At the same time, it also gives it power vis-à-vis -vis Moscow. It said, you know, we can actually adjust and calibrate how much we support you according to what we gain out of it. So we can gain out of supplying with your weapons, we actually can gain diplomatically if you more 
susceptive to what we want to achieve in the process. And this is, the, the, I think, the cleverness of Xi Jinping, that he understood that he is a unique position when the West and the United States lost a credibility in some parts of the world as honest brokers, and they are completely sided with the Ukraine. Now, we will argue they are right, and we are right to side with Ukraine when there is such a naked aggression against against the country. But at the same time, from negotiation point of view, it doesn't always put you in the best position. And in this crux, China is, is entering very cleverly. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a story, obviously, that we're going to be following next week when he makes this this uh, visit. Uh, and then we'll also be looking very carefully at what his relationship with Zelensky is after that. Was, will he have a telephone call? Will he go to Ukraine? This would be a real coup if you get if he's the one that can actually go straight from from Moscow to the to to Kiev and talk to Zelensky. And we know that also there there is a, a diplomatic channel between Kiev and 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 Beijing. And and Zelensky understand the importance of China and also send messages even even during the economic forum when his wife actually went. And, and deliver the message mm. uh, to the Chinese delegation. So, yeah, there is an understanding. China is a player and player to stay there. Bear in mind that you know how powerful Xi Jinping now in, in China being elected for third time, unprecedented third, third term. Mm. So. Uh, let's recap what we've learned in the last seven days and then we'll come back to an analysis of the papers. Here is uh, Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that America had fixed school shootings. Quite right. We learned that America had done this not by such prosaic and unimaginative means as just maybe limiting the ability of any clown to purchase the sort of weapons that sane countries only even issue to their soldiers after rigorous training. And even then, don't let them take to the shops, you lunatics. We learned that instead, some genius had invented a clever classroom whiteboard that expands at the pull of a lever into a ballistic shelter. We are absolutely not making this up. Here is what it sounded like being unveiled, well, unfolded, in Cullman, Alabama. That sound again for twice the reassurance. on working long as my two hands are fit to use Sticking with the subject of solving self-inflicted problems, we also learned that a solution may have been arrived at for the error, wretchedly common among the voters of the world's democracies in recent years, of electing people to high public office on the grounds that they are entertaining or amusing, as opposed to in any way qualified. We learned that you can just sort of sack them. We learned that Japan's parliament, the Diet, has expelled one of its own members on the not unreasonable grounds that, and we confess to paraphrasing somewhat, he is a shiftless grandstander who cannot be bothered to do any actual work. The errant and now former member of the Diet is Yoshikazu Higashitani, elected to the House of Councillors last year as the only representative of the NHK party. A gaggle of tedious headbangers 
morbidly obsessed with abolishing the licence fee which funds Japan's public broadcaster. We learned that Mr Higashitani's colleagues had taken issue with his attendance record, specifically that there was no record of his attendance as he had not turned up for work so much as once. We learned indeed that Mr Higashitani's indifference to his constituents went further still. We learned that not only can he not bestir himself to turn up to Parliament, but to Japan. Mr Higashitani lives in Dubai, fearing arrest on fraud charges or lawsuits for defamation should he come home. <coughs> Mr Higashitani had previously established a reputation and a following, however inexplicably, as a YouTube gossip monger trading under the name Gashi, whose inane videos before his channel was closed racked up views running into the gazillions. Honestly, don't know why we bother with these densely layered, neatly stitched and meticulously excogitated news monologues when we could just be gibbering like a massive idiot about total nonsense. Yeah. Not really sure how to take that. I mean, are you sympathising vis-a-vis our clearly misplaced and unappreciated efforts, or suggesting that this is little better than the perfervid drivelings of some Yahoo on the internet? Elsewhere, we learned that Wagner Group, the dislikable Russian mercenary outfit which has long made a living semi-deniably conducting the military operations that even Russia would be embarrassed by, has a remarkably clear-eyed view of its potential recruiting pool. Although, ironically, some of those potential recruits may be in danger of impairing their own vision. For we learned that Wagner Group had been mustering via Pornhub, a website of which no Monocle 24 listeners have ever heard. We learned that Wagner is selling itself thus. We learned after running that by a Russian interpreter who wanted double time for this one that the pitch is basically that young Russian men who signed with Wagner would become, should they survive their tour of duty, sufficiently irresistible as to have no further use of the website on which they saw their destiny advertised. We also learned swiftly afterwards that this route to glory had been blocked as Pornhub pulled the ad. So we have also learned, interestingly, that Pornhub does have actual standards of decorum. And we learned that New Jersey does not intend to let Florida have the title of the and finally state without a fight. We learned that the New Jersey settlement of Newark has been arguably overenthusiastic in its eagerness to make friends. We learned that Newark had excitedly agreed a sister city sort of arrangement with the Hindu nation of Kailasa and invited a couple of representatives thereof to attend an elaborate signing ceremony at City Hall, but had neglected to undertake perhaps the most elementary due diligence. But it turns out Kailasa is no nation at all. It's a fake. We learned what Newark's burgers had not, which is that Kailasa, whose diplomats have, in fairness, also snuck into a couple of UN committees this year, is the invention of Indian guru and wanted fugitive Nithyananda Paramashivan. We learned that all concerned are terrifically embarrassed by the whole thing and quite rightly. Yes, imagine twinning yourself with Newark. Come on, you'd have been disappointed if we hadn't. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
Many thanks there to Andrew. You're with Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and still with me in the studio is Yossi Meckelberg, who's an Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. But of course, you're from Israel originally. I'm, yeah. And tell me, how does that work for you now, having been settled here for sort of half your life? Mm. Do you still feel Israeli? I know that you're very bound up with the politics there, but presumably being here, you're a little of each. I think all of us that are immigrants, a bit of us is left there and part of it we probably miss being certain times there. And But yeah, I see myself as a British Israeli. I live here, my life is my work, my family. But at the same time, the interest never goes. My upbringing is in Israel. I bring some of the values that, I, you know, I was brought up uh, there and it's, it stays with you. But as my friends tell me, you know, you become more and more Brit than an Israeli. And I sometimes think maybe I was there a more Brit than Israel. That's why I moved to live in another country. So, you know, I, I used to tell my daughter when she asked me and she was born here, I said, you know, you're British with a twist. <laughs> so that's what we are. <laughs> British with a twist. I like that. Well, of course, you must be tremendously excited looking at what's happening in Israel now, because it does seem, although there are terrible things, uh, that it might be on the cusp of change. So on the one, of course... We are worried. There is real concerns. There is a government that embarked what they call judicial reform, but it's not a reform. Reform might be needed, but it's a complete coup. It's destroying the, the judicial system, weakening the Supreme Court. And m- much of it is to make sure that Netanyahu is off the hook of his corruption trial. But the others really believe that a strong Supreme Court is not good for the country, not good for the politicians, mainly for them, and actually not good for them to entrench the occupation in, in the West Bank. And there are a lot of you know, subtext there, those are against uh, a gender equality, those are against LGBTQ+. So there is a lot of among this very dangerous group that want to, these changes. And they are like kids in a switch shop. They just were elected. They want all of them at now and to have reforms that are constitutional and should look at the, the future to do it uh, all, almost overnight. Mm. On the other hand, there is part of me that is optimistic because even here in this studio, I many times say, the more, the, the, the more progressive forces in Israel, the democratic forces in Israel are apathetic. They see the occupation, they see that the religious elements in Israel are taking hold more and more in the Israeli society and they're quiet because the economy is doing well as long as they have the nice glass of red wine and nice meals in Tel Aviv and a lot of money come from the high tech they do nothing this really got under the skin and to see half a million people in like 100 different places in Israel demonstrate they are not apathetic anymore they are very creative as Israel would be in the way they demonstrate they send a very clear message to the government. By the way, not only in Israel, but in London, in Berlin, in Rome, wherever the, the, the prime minister is going. And he, uh, Netanyahu is going to visit here next week and he will face demonstration here. And it's week after week. People take time off from work during the week to block the airport, for instance, when he flies for his nice uh, lux- luxurious uh, weekends away, nicer than the demonstration at home. So this actually, maybe on the eve of the 75th anniversary of Israel independence, the country needed a crisis. Otherwise, the deterioration was being incremental, and by the end of it, you won't recognize Israel democracy. Now it got to a crisis, and hopefully 
it will come out of it in the right place. Mm. Uh, the Economist has a, a piece this yeah. week saying, will Bibi break Israel? <laughs> well, what's the answer? And I would say either we'll break Israel and make Israel. And it, it might be the case that, yes, this, this, this forces will pass this legislation and at least for a while, politicians will elect judges for the Supreme Court. Their uh, uh, legal advisor will be appointed by them instead of actually being uh, more objective. You know, a lot, and, and there is something called the override clause, uh, uh, which means that whenever the Supreme Court would decide that a, a, a law is not constitutional, then they can actually go back to the Knesset and override it. So there is a list of laws that are, will corrupt the system, will make it more dictatorial. But at the same time, when you see soldiers, and I can't remember so many, you know, pilots of fire jets, F-15, you know, the one that if one day there is war in Iran, they will be in the front front of it, say, we are not going to save in dictatorship. Actually, it can actually draw a line in the sand. That's, we are ready to actually fight for the country. We are ready to sacrifice our life. Even they will say we're ready to do things that we don't really feel good about it, but not when you save a dictatorship. So I think this will, and if there are elections soon as a result of it and the coalition breaks, actually something else and better might come out of it. Mm, very interesting. Of course, as you say, Israel's approaching its 75th birthday in yeah. April. Well, another commemoration that we're looking at is 20 years since the mm -hmm. Iraq war. Now, a little while ago, I sp spoke to Khaith Abdul Ahad, who is the award-winning uh, Iraqi journalist. He was there throughout the war, uh, and I, uh, I had him on the programme, uh, Meet the Writers, and we spoke about his time there reporting about the war and looking back. And I asked him really... What's happened since then and could it have been avoided? You know, the ultimate thing in this book is there is no accountability. Mm -hmm. No accountability to the people who ordered the war, the people who executed the war, the, the Iraqis who killed other Iraqis. 20 years on, we don't have any accountability. How could it have turned out differently? I don't believe you can conduct an illegal occupation of a country after decades of sanctions, wars, and you turn it differently. I don't think there is any scenario in which this war could have not ended in the way it ended. However, there could have been ways to mitigate the the civil war that, that happened in Iraq. There was a way, you know, I call it two civil wars. So the first civil war ended in 2008, 2009, before the emergence of ISIS in 2011-12. And there was a period when the second civil war could have been avoided. The first civil war could have been avoided. But again, short-sightedness, greed, sectarian politics, all these played a role in continuing this conflict. Where is Iraq now? Well, look, in Baghdad, people are going to restaurants, people are going in of their houses, traveling, coming back, working. Uh, Iraq is a very rich country, $120 billion a year of oil money. And yet the poverty, the social injustice, the places in Baghdad and the rest of Iraq on par with some of the worst poorest countries in the world. That dichotomy, that split between the rich and the poor 
is the potential of the next round of conflict in Iraq. Iraq is facing major challenges, least of which is terrorism or ISIS and whatnot, environmental collapse, rivers drying, expanding population. And again, a clique of kleptocratic politicians, businessmen, militia commanders controlling the state versus the rest of the population. That is the next conflict. I mean, you, you talk about, you write about the Arab Spring and you talk about the sort of Iraqi attempts at the same thing, which ultimately didn't work. Do you think something like that could happen? So Tishreen uprising, the Tishreen demonstrations in, in October 2019, that was the first moment when, when Iraqis kind of washed away this filth of sectarianism when groups of young men, poor and rich, girls and boys, all went into the street demonstrating against the ruling politicians and yet also against both Iran and the United States. The rallying cry was, Nrid Watan, we want a homeland. Of course, as all uprisings, popular uprisings, it failed. But it was a beginning. It was a beginning in showing Iraqis that there is a non-sectarian path that could lead to something better. So I think history needs some more time, another 20 years. But I think the beginning happened in 2019. And that's Gecht Abdul Ahad. His book is A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East Long War. And you can listen back to that through our archives on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, still with me is Yossi Meckelberg. And Yossi, we're looking at uh, the big piece in foreign policy, uh, the lessons not learned from Iraq. I I think the the, the first lesson is regime change doesn't work. And uh, the idea that you can enter into a country and just topple a government and everything will be rosy. It's, it's such an illusion. And it happens time and again. The Russian tried it in Afghanistan. Israel tried it in Lebanon. I- I- Iraq. And again, the Americans in, 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 in the Allies. We too, here in the UK, in, in Afghanistan again. And, you know, it takes me back. You mentioned it was my early days, you know, 20 years ago. And we spoke to people from, from administration in, in, in the Allies. <clears throat> and we warned them, it doesn't work like this. It's a complex society. Nation states in the Middle East are not the nation states that you think in Europe, in the United mm-hmm. States. You can break it, but put it together will take forever. And the answer, especially from Washington, was always, which really we knew that <laughs> it's not going to go well. Oh, they love democracy, they will love us, and it will be fine. And I say, where is the evidence going to be fine? There was no plan. There was military plan to topple Saddam Hussein, and this worked. But the day after, and you see, for, you saw from the first day, the ignorance about the country, the way they dismantled the the the, the bath, the depacification, not understanding that being part of the, part of the Ba'ath Party doesn't mean that you are loyal to the president. But this is what you need them: the soldiers, the the, the police, the bureaucracy, and from then on ensued chaos. Mm. And in this chaos entered all the groups that we just heard about and created a civil war. And it hasn't recovered and corruption. And you can't enter into a country and break it completely, dismantle it and expect that unless you're really committed in building something and you have a plan to rebuild it, we got what we got. It's, uh, I mean, <clears throat> as Heath says, it might take another 20 years. Uh, I mean, or more. Or, or more. Or more. Um, 
Thank you so much for being with me today, Yossi. It's been fascinating and I think we're going to end on a much more cheerful note. We're going to go to our brand new travel programme, The Concierge. And uh, every week on the programme, we bring you a letter from our weekly dispatch from our correspondents and contributors from destinations around the world. Well, this week, our man in Spain, Liam Aldous, hit the ground to guide us through Ibiza's lesser known, more peaceful pastures. As each summer season gets bigger, louder and longer, it's no wonder Ibithenkos cast a sort of invisibility cloak over their aisle during the off-season. But with many seeking more peaceful pastures these days, the island's natural beauty, good food and colourful characters have been lifting the spell. A lot of what we're doing is just breaking past the limitations of our minds and we get past wanting to be spiritual or profound or poetic or funny or whatever our usual defaults are to see which voice is really there and what it has to say today. For many visitors, the first port of call is the countryside home of poet Alexia Panay, who hosts weekly creative writing workshops. It may feel weird stepping so soon through a stranger's door, lovely though as Alexia may be, but in Ibiza, the house remains a locus of cultural activity and social connection. When you just arrive on the island, the doors that open depend on the people that you meet. And one of the keys to the island is actually how vulnerable and authentic can you be? And when people feel that you're real, whatever it is, that's what's celebrated here. Later that evening, I pull up a chair at Ambre restaurant to chat with Galicia-born Antia Bagant. Resettling from New York, the former fashion photographer opened this small-scale eatery five years ago, together with partner Argentine chef Matias Romano. We start to realize that there was a big community in the island that have moved to spend like whole year here and there was a philosophy changing in terms of how you experience the island. The couple's bold decision to open all year round seems to have paid off, with Antia showing me around new sister cafe and wine bar said, which opened right next door only a few days ago. The winter, the calmness, you know, the slow mode, it gives us the time to connect. And the kitchen, they can also have the time to create. Greater connection is something many of the gregarious diners gathered here tonight seem to be craving. Many times the chefs come to the table and bring you the place and they will explain you and they see the immediate reaction with the customer. And this is like connecting, you know, this is like, wow, like he's actually enjoying the food. And well, this is it. We always have a coming of going of not only musicians, we have people from fashion, from design. We have a lot of photo shoots, events here. So it's definitely a creative hub. Leila Arato is showing me around Kanjay, a refurbished farmhouse that combines retro-styled accommodation with a state-of-the-art recording studio. While there is much lore about the island's gatekeepers, people like Leila literally hold the keys, serving as guides and guardians, managing expectations and experiences. I'm very frustrated when people come and don't have a good time, they don't love it, they don't fall in love, and I always think, how can you not? (laughs) So for me, I always do my best to show the best sides and show a place that I am in love with in the best possible way. Not everything is at fingertip 24-7, so it's difficult to get a taxi here on the island. Not everything can be delivered. People don't really realize that they need a car to get around, so that makes it a bit hard that you have to really, you have to prep people for coming. 
in New York, you just go out just to go out, just to be seen and show your new outfit. What I loved about events, parties here, they are meaningful. Camille Pachomienko once ran notorious New York night spot The Submerser. He's now head of culture and entertainment at Six Senses Ibiza. He's also part of the island's changing face. People running towards rather than away from something, mixing in healing with hedonism, a search for balance but with a capital B. I thought it would be very tacky when somebody would tell me that you start a dance party with meditation, I would laugh a few years ago. Now, when I joined that, it's just so amazing and creates the energy and the synergy and everything. It's very unusual. It's very, it's very unusual. And all the people would come, they come with a different mindset. But what of high culture? While there are several surprisingly dynamic galleries, I'm drawn back to my conversation with Alexia, who reminded me of why we seek out art in the first place. Museums are a bit outdated. I, I love to go to a museum, but those really only popped up to put things in glass and observe them from the outside. We are nature. We are observing ourselves. We are observing the seasons within us that are reflected outside of us. And Ibiza is the most beautiful canvas to create and inspire. Everything speaks. And when you're quiet enough to listen, it definitely gets reflected in the art, in the conversations, we're asking questions and we, we want to learn. It's more grassroots, but it's a funny mix, right? Because we have anything from a hippie living in his van to a billionaire to a famous musician to a farmer. And that is also part of the nature here that communicates. For Monocle in Ibiza, I'm Liam Aldous. And that comes from our brand new programme, The Concierge. And you can catch up with the latest edition at monocle.com. And there's a new episode every Wednesday. And of course, Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, and the rest of the Monocle on Saturday team, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>